And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. Hey, Frank, a little birdie told me you don't need a satellite dish to get DirecTV. What's the little birdie? Was it Jimmy the Sparrow? It's a figure of speech. Point is, you can stream DirecTV over the internet now. Oh, sure. Next you're going to tell me those big birds are made of metal and filled with people, right? <laughs> you mean airplanes? Stream DirecTV without a satellite dish. Visit DirecTV.com. High-speed internet service required. Terms and restrictions apply. Welcome to the Athletic Fantasy Baseball Podcast presented by Tops. Check out Tops Project 70, celebrating 70 years of Tops baseball cards. Derek Van Riper here with a guest today, Sarah Sanchez of Fangraphs and Bleed Cubby Blue, the Cubs SB Nation blog, joins me. And we're going to talk about the 2021 rookie class, some players that have exceeded expectations, some who have fallen short of expectations, what that means going forward. We'll probably dig into a few other topics along the way too. some broader takeaways from the season so far. Uh, we compete against each other in Glarf, which uh, is a spinoff of the Barf League, which is basically like a regional group of leagues that were created in the last few years. And now there's kind of an overall component, sort of like the NFBC. So we're both in the, the Midwest League, the Great Lakes version of that, even though I have since moved to the West Coast. I'm now Barf eligible. I don't know what I'm going to do. I have to solve that uh, over the course of the offseason. But Sarah, thank you for joining me today. Yeah, thanks for having me. I think you should just stay in Glarf uh, and join us for the draft. I think that would be the most fun thing, particularly because we didn't get to have an in-person draft this year, which I am really looking forward to next year's in-person draft. Yeah, I thought for sure 2022 drafts would be a no-brainer. Everything's going to be great. And I think they still will be, but I'm less certain of that now than I ever thought I would be if you if you told me back in March and April, and by the way, everyone's going to start to get vaccinated soon, and um, it, you're maybe not going to do drafts this time next year, I would have said, wait, what? What's happening? But here we are. Hopefully, we see things continuing to progress in the right direction. Uh, but I want to talk to you about rookies because you wrote a piece at Fangraphs recently looking at the rookie of the year races for the stretch run. And I think they're usually among the more fun awards to break down because you can make a lot of different arguments. You can kind of decide whether or not you want the rookie who's been up the longest, who's accrued the most war, or the rookie who, had they been called up sooner, would have probably been the best rookie in the entire pool. Maybe it's the most impactful player over the course of the time they were up. Lots of ways you can look at it. You can go hitter versus pitcher. And we'll start on the AL side. And there's two Rays, like the one Ray who was really the favorite, I think, based on betting odds and expectations coming off of what he did at the end of last year and through the playoffs is, of course, Randy Arozarena. And I guess the question I have for you with Arozarena is, should we be satisfied with what he has done this season based on his draft day cost? And is he a legitimate front runner for the award with a little over a month to play? So I concluded that he is a legitimate front runner for the award with the, with a little over a month to play, but that does not mean that I think that we should be satisfied with his draft day costs. A Rosarena was super interesting to me with this piece because he's one of the players who has been, it feels like he's been around for a while. I mean, I know you and I are both NL central people. I'm a Cubs person. You're a Brewers person. We were watching a Rosarena with the Cardinals back in 2018, 2019, right? Like I, a Rosarena has been in the league for a while now, but he still has rookie eligibility. Um, he showed 
all of us what he is capable of doing in the postseason last year. And that really drove up his draft price. And then kind of started out quiet. I mean, he he reversed Adelise Garcia this thing. And I know we're going to talk about Adelise Garcia in a second. But it seems it, it's interesting to me that a Rosarena is going to probably wind up with the award because he was the favorite and he finished strong when the start of his season didn't really deliver what you thought you were getting with an Arena pick. And it's not quite as runaway of a race as one would think. I mean, I personally am pretty compelled by Luis Garcia's numbers. There's a lot of Garcia, so you got to specify your Garcia <laughs> in this podcast. I think that Arena did what he had to do, but it, it wasn't like a slam dunk argument. And I kind of anticipate for somebody who's been around the league for so long, who's already had a bit of a coming out party, that should have been a stronger case. And it's not. Yeah, I mean, I'm looking at the Rotowire earn value tool, running it through a 15-team mixed league, and Randy Rosarena has been worth $19. Similar outfielders have been Joey Gallo, Jared Walsh, Robbie Grossman, Austin Meadows' teammate's been a little bit more valuable. I think part of this, though, is that Rosarena has at least provided that power-speed combo we were looking for, and the batting average has come out a bit higher than I expected, because the one major flaw in his profile that I see that I'm concerned about for the long haul is his tendency to swing and miss at pitches outside the zone. And that's still, I would say we're still at a stage of his career where I don't think that's necessarily who he'll always be, but that profile tends to give you wider swings in batting average because it's hard to get your K rate down if you're going to swing and miss often at pitches that are very difficult to hit. Um, But I would agree with you. I mean, I think he's still the front runner for the award. I think if I had a vote, there's a pitcher in the AL that I like just a little bit better. We'll get to him in just a little while. But I also think if if Rosarena's teammate, if Wander Franco was up all season, he'd be the lock for this award. I mean, he's basically on pace for a five-win season for the third of a season that he's been up. It's clear the Rays trust him. He's hitting in the heart of their order on a day-to-day basis. And the production has been... I think more than 20% better than league average in terms of the WRC plus. So he is exactly as good as we thought he could be from the jump. And I think there's obviously still plenty of ceiling there. So how do you balance when you're thinking about something like this? How do you balance the guy who's been up all year in a Rosarena versus the guy who's been a lot better on a per game basis in Wander Franco? Well, you know, I'm kind of glad that I don't have any of these ballots at this point in my writing career, because I think that's a really difficult question to suss out. I, I have Wander Franco in our Glarf League. I held on to him for all of that time while I was waiting and waiting and waiting. I went through a handful of shortstop and middle infield candidates just praying that Wander Franco was eventually going to get the call up. And, and I was rewarded. Like I got exactly what I was looking for with Wander Franco. And I'm glad I held on to him. I'm glad that I didn't drop him. That was outstanding. But but it is interesting in this award because you do have, because of the rookie eligibility years, uh, rookie eligibility rules, and because of the short season, you do have some guys that are just playing fundamentally different baseball right now, right? Like you feel like Wander Franco is the guy that this award was made for. The guy who comes up, he burns all of his rookie eligibility in one season. He shows us exactly what he is and what he's capable of, and he gives us a lot of hope for the future. And it just seems a little bit unfair that he is going to lose possibly that award to a guy who's not playing in his first season, who has more playing time because he's been around for so long, who got more experience because of the other seasons that he played in MLB. And I I get it. It's a quirk of the award and the eligibility, and there's not really a perfect way to fix it. I think that 
I personally would like to think that I would consider an, a Wander Franco case very strongly if I had that ballot. But, I, but I'm frankly glad that I don't have to make that decision because I think it's an almost impossible choice to make. If he mashes for the final month plus of the season, I think it'll become a more popular idea to make him the AL Rookie of the Year because he could close some of the gap between guys who've been up all year like Rosarena and like Adelis Garcia. And I think Adelis Garcia was a fun story while it lasted. We're going to get to him in just a minute. But I think the the only other wander question I guess I'm, I'm wondering about right now is is the helium going to be so great on him going into 2022 that he's impossible to justify rostering? Like, even if you think the ceiling is almost limitless for him as a hitter, and I kind of believe that, if he comes in with a, a second or third round ADP, which I don't think is out of bounds just based on the way that the fantasy baseball community handles prospects like this and has historically done it, could you see yourself rostering him if, if that ends up being the price going to next season? I probably will not, but that's because I have a very particular bias against sophomore players. I think that the sophomore slump in baseball is real. Like the the players and their fantasy value hit that they take in that second season all has has bitten me so many times that I just I, I can't do it. Like I I remember getting hit with this with Aaron Judge when he had that like I had I picked him up off of waivers. I rode him to a championship in a league, and then the next season I bought in on that super high. ADP price, it didn't work. This happened with Chris Bryant. This happened with Fernando Tatis. Like there's like this, there's, it bothers me. Like the sophomore slump I think is real. And so in the case of Wander Franco, I think I'm probably going to go with a shortstop with maybe a little bit more, a little, a little bit more certainty. I don't even know that it's higher floor because I think Franco's clearly shown that he's a great player and he's going to play a lot. You know, I'm looking at the rest of season projections for him and a Rosarena on fan graphs right now. And they're not all that different. They've got a Rosarena, you know, at 32 games, 263, 341, 457 with a WRC plus of 122. And then you move over to Franco and it's 33 games, 272, 327, 441 with a WRC plus of 114. It's like you're sacrificing a little bit of average for power and you would probably expect that with either one of those guys. And so it's, it's just sort of a situation where I think that Frank Franco's had a great year. I think that if he exceeds those expectations considerably, he's going to be on a lot more ballots than he would be on if the voting happened today. And I also am just not sure that he's going to be on my team next season, but that's okay. There's a lot of good shortstop options out there. I am the girl who's been playing Chris Taylor all year in shortstop in Glark because y'all went on a shortstop run at the wrong side of the draft for me. And so I, I had a mini panic attack that I wasn't going to have a shortstop at all. <laughs> Worked out okay, though. Chris Taylor turning in yet another really nice season, a guy that I think consistently gets underrated. Clearly, the Dodgers love the guy and, and justifiably play him a ton all over the place. But yeah, a nice uh, nice fallback option for you if you missed out on a run back during draft season. There's some other interesting names in this group of rookies that I, I feel like would be getting more hype if the circumstances were different. Andrew Vaughn, like people might be sleeping on him a little bit because he's been learning a new defensive position. He's not a good defender in the outfield. That pulls down his war. I think the first thing people look at when they look at an award like this, they're going to pull up the leaderboard and say, well, who among rookies leads the league in war? It's not Andrew Vaughn, but he's been good. A, a slow start at the plate, which I think was to be expected. I mean, he was among the guys that didn't get to play in the minors last season, didn't get a, a debut, and was making the leap from high A to the big leagues, which I think... Aside from the lost time, 
is a really important thing to keep in mind. Like if you don't see double A AA and triple A pitching and you have to go in and make adjustments against top level pitching and you handle that as well as Andrew Vaughn has handled that, that's actually really impressive. And I just feel like people aren't really talking that much about it in part because he's on a pretty star heavy team, you know, on the South side of Chicago. Yeah, Andrew Vaughn also is young compared to the rest of this class. So one of the things that I looked at that didn't make it into the piece was looking at the ages of players who were playing uh, in their rookie seasons, because one of the things that I thought I would find is that some of the rookies who have really excelled this season were some of the guys who had more experience who were a little bit older. I thought that might be a consequence of the shortened season and having the um, alternate sites and not a full year of the minor league season for some of these guys to develop. That actually wasn't the case. There were there are a couple of young guys who really have risen to the occasion, and Andrew Vaughn is one of them. But I think it's important to remember when you're looking at some of those numbers that he's like 23 and a half. <laughs> he's barely, you know, he is really, really young relative to some of the guys who are on this list relative to, you know, Randy Rosarena is 26 and a half. That, that's a lot of experience that he has that Andrew Vaughn does not. And I think that if we're looking at 26-year-old Randy Rosarena versus 26-year-old Andrew Vaughn in a few years, we're going to see Andrew Vaughn had a, a lot higher ceiling than um, we thought at this moment in time. Yeah, I think there are some people out there that see Vaughn as a long-term middle-of-the-order masher. I mean, I think that's exactly what the the one-line profile on Fangraphs says, a middle third of the order bat. I, I immediately comp him to like a Chris Bryant, where I, I think 20-ish percent K rate, 10 plus percent walk rate, and eventually 30 home run power with the lineup around him, especially plenty of runs, plenty of RBIs, really does everything but steals bases. And if you do all those things that well, you're an early round pick for several years at peak. So I'm definitely in on Vaughn, I think relative to Wander and probably even a Rosarena because of the steals, Vaughn might be a relative bargain from this rookie class as we look ahead to 2022. Uh, I mentioned Adelis Garcia. He was fun while it lasted. He's I mean, much older than just about everybody else in consideration here. He's 28 already. I enjoyed this story in the first half, but I, I felt like I've seen similar instances in the past of a guy who gets playing time unexpectedly, has a pretty clear plate discipline issue, and the league sort of figures him out. And he doesn't have the ability to make enough adjustments to really get anywhere close to the initial level that he was at do you see anything in the second half which has been just a prolonged stretch of struggles for Garcia that gives you some hope that we could be talking about him at least as a somewhat valuable fantasy player in 2022 I think that his draft price is probably going to go up based on what he showed at the start of this season and I mean and by up I mean you could get him off the waiver wire in most leagues going into the second or third week of this season I remember seeing him there and I put putting a bit on him and not getting him which I still am kind of bummed about because those early numbers would have really helped me out in a couple of leagues um I am not all of, all that excited about Adelise Garcia. I, I want to be, I agree with you. It was a great story at the start of the season. I thought your mean Mercedes was also a great story at the start of the season. I just don't see either one of those guys making it onto my team at the, on for next season's roster. I will say this about Garcia, the, the, I think he will have more playing time than some of the other guys that have been flash in the pans in previous seasons because his defense is, is quite good. I, he's got a lot of defensive highlight reels. That Rangers team is going to have a place for him to play next season. And so I don't think that this is a situation like Mercedes where he gets sent back to AAA and you just don't hear from him again. He winds up dancing around to some new clubs. And then you're like, oh yeah, whatever happened to that guy? I think that Garcia will play. I just think 
that he's probably not the 126 WRC player he was in the first half. He's probably closer to the 8179 WRC plus player that he's been in July and August. And I, that's, that's fine for the glove that he has and he'll give the Rangers some value, but that's not going to win him a rookie of the year award when some other guys are surging around him. And it's probably not going to land him on a bunch of fantasy teams unless he's someone you're taking a flyer on in the really late rounds next year. Yeah, I kind of see him as a maybe like a fringy top 200 overall sort of player. So double digit rounds in most cases, which again, if you had said that back in May, people would have said, wait, really? He's like, yeah, it's just it's too much swing and miss. And that's always been in the profile for him. He's had power, he's had speed, but it is really important to keep an eye on a player's defense because that is enough to continue to give him opportunities, especially on a bad team like Texas. Like if you look at their organizational depth chart, there aren't a lot of young outfielders knocking on the door ready to take that spot. So unless they take a few more flyers in free agency than expected, I'm with you. I think he actually plays quite a bit, at least to begin the season in 2022. So definitely a guy that in the right context, maybe I'll have him on some rosters, but I probably won't have him a lot of places because of the swing and miss concerns that we're still seeing here deep into this rookie season. Let's talk about a few AL pitchers, though. Luis Garcia, I think, might be the most deserving candidate for Rookie of the Year in the American League. And I, I just think this is another development success story for the Astros, for one. But there was a really interesting tweet that Tom Trudeau threw out there. I've played in some dynasty leagues with Tom over the years. And he was basically saying that he has never been more willing to trade away high-value pitching prospects before they debut because of the success of a lot of future value 35 and 45 arms. Guys like Carlos Hernandez in Kansas City, Waskari Noah in Atlanta, Logan Webb, uh, Luis Garcia was part of that too, Jordan Montgomery. And I think it, it made me wonder if if scouting pitching is harder now than it's ever been before because of the ways that teams can develop pitching and change so much about a pitcher Given all the technology, using Rapsodos and, and everything they've got, they can go out and go into a pitching lab and basically just turn the guy that the scout saw into someone completely different. I think when you have an environment like that, you have this scenario where guys significantly exceed expectations. And as has been the case ever since pitching prospects first became a thing, there's still injuries kind of dragging down the absolute best pitching prospects. Guys like Forrest Whitley, who got hurt, of course, way back in the winter. Uh, and it, Mackenzie Gore, who is going through some kind of mechanical issue and obviously has had a little bit of injury stuff too. Like that's, that's a complete mystery. But anyway, I think this is just a long way of me saying like, even though the expectations for Luis Garcia were not that he'd be a rookie of the year candidate someday, I actually believe in what we're seeing here. Yeah. I think Luis Garcia is great. I have him on at least one fantasy team and he has been absolute money for me. I've been having quite a bit of success uh, in the ERA and WHIP ratio categories this season. So I need to go back and look at how I stumbled into that and figure out how a way to recreate that. Um, Luis Garcia is one of these guys who the K rate keeps going up and the walk rate keeps going down, which is always a nice thing to see from a pitcher. And I'll add one other element to the technology portion of your commentary that I think is super important with scouting these pitchers. A lot of these guys came up with sticky stuff. The, the sticky stuff Thing wasn't just happening in MLB. It was happening in the minor leagues. It was happening in college uh, games. It was happening in high school and development games as well. Those A lot of these pitchers were, have been throwing for the vast majority of their career. 
with some form of tack, right? And I, I have never been more aware of what humidity does to touching your fingers than I was this this year walking around Chicago. Every day it's humid, I find myself touching my fingers. I'm like, oh yeah, that really, that really does change the way that I can sort of like get some tactile movement <laughs> on my own fingers. I can't imagine what happens if you throw some spider tack on that. But so I think that there's a lot of guys hanging out there who maybe will exceed their projections probably by a lot because what they were scouted for, how they were developed is different than the environment that they find themselves throwing in now. And I think that Luis Garcia is a pretty good example of a success story there. As, as you mentioned, I think that the Astros are an organization that has been very good with developing pitchers. I tend to like draft, uh, drafting guys who are Astros players, drafting guys who are Cleveland players, like looking for some guys out of the Oakland system, guys where, you know, those arms have developed pretty well in the past. I, I try to stay away from the Cubs for this, although they've shown some recent success with their pitching lab, although that really started this season more than anything else. We can talk about that later if we have time. But the I think that organizations and pitching development really matters a lot. And the changing environment means that there's going to be some guys out there who were not on anybody's radar and you can snatch them up and you might get some draft value. There. Yeah, uh, I'm right there with you. I think with Garcia, the thing that really catches my eye is that we're talking about a pitcher with at least three above average pitchers and he commands everything really well. The arsenal's even deeper than that. He's really got five pitches he can use. It's not all about velo. There's just so many ways he can attack hitters and give them different looks. And I guess the other part of it too is this is a point that Vlad Sedler made on the show back during draft season. The AL West is a pretty good division for pitchers in general, especially if you're on the Astros, not facing what has often been the best lineup in the league. That's huge in and of itself, but Oakland's a good place to pitch. Houston is a good place to pitch for those home games. You know, Seattle going through their last kind of phase of rebuilding wasn't a lineup that we were fearful of coming to the season. Um, so I, I do think that was a kind of a good point there. And of course, the Rangers obviously are a team you can pick on with just about anybody. But Garcia, for me, I, if I had a vote, he'd be he'd be the winner of the AL Rookie of the Year award at least at this point in the season. Uh, and Shane McClanahan, I think, is another guy that is worth talking about here just because he looks so good. I know there were concerns about command for him as a prospect, but the stuff, it kind of blew up right away. Like That's one of the things with with Eno's uh, model looking at Stuff Plus, the thing that he and Max Bay put together, is you can tell pretty quickly just how much a pitcher's arsenal stacks up favorably to the other top pitchers. And the numbers that the the model spit out on Shane McClanahan were like off the charts good for a guy that was not considered by most people to be even a top 100 prospect league-wide entering the season. I think McClanahan gets hurt a little bit because of the way the Rays manage their young pitchers. And this is not anything that he, he can't do anything about this, right? But they are so good at pulling those pitchers at the slightest sign of trouble that he doesn't have the innings or the length that Luis Garcia does. He doesn't get a shot really to see what happens when he gets more in trouble to see how he would get out of that. And so I think that um, McClanahan, I think is very interesting. I, I He's definitely on my radar for pitchers I would like to have on my team next season. But I think that for the purposes of the rookie of year, rookie of the year award itself, that pro the edge probably has to go to Garcia. But I agree with you. I think that McClanahan stuff is absolutely legit. And the few times that I've gotten to watch him pitch, I've been incredibly impressed with what he's shown, particularly for 
a guy who wasn't, I mean, I think we talked a lot more about Patino than we did about McClanahan coming in to last season. When he came up, I had to do some digging to be like, oh, is this a guy that I want to try to put some bad money on or not? And I, I'm really impressed with what the Rays have there. Yeah, I thought going back to that part of the year, I thought Logan Gilbert was going to be probably the the best of those young pitchers called up right away. I think there were there were reasons to be optimistic about Alec Manoa, similar to McClanahan. Once we had some stuff plus numbers, it was like, oh, okay, this is legit. And he was making such a, a big leap because of the lost season that there was only, I, I just think, some some questions of, well, okay, how, how good is the stuff against top-level competition? We didn't have any track record of dominance at AA or AAA other than this season early on to fall back on. I, I expected Gilbert to be the best of the bunch. I think he could still be the best of the bunch in the long run because I think there's a, a little bit more command to fall back on. Like Command age is a lot better than stuff tends to age, and I think that's what gives me some long-term hope, but there's like no chance Gilbert's going to win the AL Rookie of the Year award because... As we near the end of August, he's sitting there with a 5.16 ERA. Um, I, I thought just a couple episodes of Rates and Barrels ago that Logan Gilbert was going to be this guy that was going to be overpriced in 2022 drafts, but a couple of recent blowups might be tempering that just a little bit. You know, Gilbert's really interesting, and that's another one where I sort of look at the organization. I almost wonder what Logan Gilbert would look like if he was coming up with the Rays or if he was coming up with Houston or Cleveland instead, because I think that we would see a fundamentally more impactful pitcher and and Gilbert has been very good but I just wonder if the Mariners are going to be able to harness and develop his ability the same way that some of those other organizations might have been I agree with you that his draft price is probably falling um at the moment and he's he's been great but I don't think that the numbers are where they need to be for him to wind up on the ballot for this particular award I mean one of the things that people need to keep in mind with rookie of the year it's not like MVP where you rank your top 10 or whatever it is and turn in that ballot. You you get three three names. That's it. So the question is, who are the top three people that you are going to recognize in the league? And they can play anywhere. They can be relief pitchers, starting pitchers, shortstops, catchers, whatever. Uh, and so when you're limited to three names, I think that guys like uh, McClanahan, guys like Gilbert are probably the guys that get left off that ballot. Guys like Vaughn. Um, but that doesn't mean that they've had less impressive rookie seasons or that they shouldn't be part of your considerations going into draft day next year. Those are some really valuable uh, players who could make a huge impact on your team if there is baseball in 2022. And Vaughn in particular, I think, could be a deal for people. I'm going to remain as optimistic as possible that there will be baseball in 2022 and it won't be interrupted. This winter might be ugly, but there will be baseball next season. There has to be baseball. I have to believe there will be baseball. Otherwise, I will lose my mind. Um, it's interesting that we've had this conversation for 25 or so minutes about AL rookies and Jared Kelnick's name hasn't really been a part of that conversation yet. I think there are a lot of reasons to be encouraged by him. His August has been really good and there's still so much room for him to become the well above average hitter that everyone expected to be back on draft day. I kind of wonder, like, is he going to be cheaper than he was in 2021? The same price as he was in 2021? September probably plays a role in whether or not he could move up in price. But if he keeps taking a step forward over the final month of the season, I don't think he can play his way into the rookie of the year conversation at this point. He's been a below replacement level player because of that really prolonged slump that got him sent down earlier this season. But my long-term outlook on Kelnick is still very bright, even though this season just hasn't been what we expected it to be. 
Well, the Rookie of the Year award is kind of weird because as I was looking at the names of people who have won it, there's some people who are, who they're guys, right? Like they're guys that you want on your team or guys that have won MVPs in the future. I mean, Chris Bryant was a Rookie of the Year and he's currently doing wonderful things for his new team in San Francisco. Uh, you should go watch him play sometime. He's, he's still great. I watched him against the Brewers the other day. It was outstanding. Um, but there's a lot of names on that list that are guys you are like, really? I, that dude won rookie of the year. He kind of flamed out in two seasons and I never heard from him again. And and that's just sort of the nature of the award. I think Kellenic is an example of a player who will be substantially more impactful than his rookie season. And I think that there's a whole slew of talent in this rookie class that just didn't quite develop or come to fruition as quickly as they wanted, as they wanted to, or as fans thought they might based on their prospect pedigree. A lot of that has to do with what was going on at the different alternate sites in 2020. If players were playing at the alternate site, which not all of the top prospects were, they were getting radically different experiences of what baseball looks like. And, and I think that we can see in some of the rookies who have really developed and shone this year, how organizations treat and develop their players differently. I mean, Luis Garcia, I think, is a really good example of this. Everything that I read or hear about the Houston Astros system says that they understand prospect development. And they understand how important it is to take care of their players. I, they, I, this doesn't get as much press as I think it should have should, but they're one of the teams that make sure that their players have a place to live, <laughs> that they are mm -hmm. taking, like that they're not worried about having a roof over their head. I think there's competitive value in that. I don't think the Astros are doing that because they're nice people. I think they're doing that because they understand that that's a way for them to develop these prospects faster. And those prospects will be better when they get to the major leagues as a result. I'm not saying that, you know, that is specifically why Kellenic struggled when he came up. I think that he's still going to be an outstanding major league player, but I think there's some struggles there and he just hasn't worked his way into the rookie conversation this year. He is definitely a guy that I'm interested in potentially drafting in the future. I mean, I drafted a couple of shares at the end of last year's draft of Joe Adele and I didn't wind up hanging on to him as long as I hung on to Wander Franco or Mackenzie Gore, who never came up and made an impact. So I'll, I'll just like, you know, I already tooted my own horn a little bit about holding on to Wander Franco. I also held on to Mackenzie Gore for way too long, and that clearly did not pan out the way that I wanted it to. Um, I think that Kellenic is a guy that you can probably get later in a draft now next season. And that'll be interesting because he's also a guy who is probably still going to make an impact on a Mariners team that is going to be much better next season than they are right now. They have a lot of young talent that is MLB ready in that farm system. And I'm excited to see where the Mariners go. Yeah. And I think with the Mariners, you kind of hinted at this before, maybe we'd be more excited about Gilbert if he was pitching in one of those other organizations that have done it for the better part of a decade. I think the Mariners are going to be in that group. I, I think when we have conversations about player development two and three years from now, I think we're going to see, Guys like Gilbert and eventually George Kirby and Kelnick and Julio Rodriguez, we're going to say the Mariners get it. They're, they're a smart organization. They're doing things the right way. At least that's based on some of the things that I have heard sort of secondhand about what they're doing. I have a little more optimism about them as an organization. Uh, I know that kind of flies in the face of the Kevin Mather eruption back during the spring, but he's not player development. He's he's just he's an idiot. So we'll move, we'll move on from that. I don't have anything else to say about that particular topic. So I'll just let it lie as it is. But um, I'm with you on the, on the general like feel of the AL race here. I think it really is like Luis Garcia and kind of Randy Rosarena one, two, I think at this point with plenty of other quality rookies mixed in 
Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service anytime. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Um, let's talk about the NL for a little bit, where I, for a while it looked like Trevor Rogers was going to run away with it. I know he's on the bereavement list, which became a stint on the restricted list for a little while. He's trending back, so I think there's a chance he can continue to show just how effective he can be over the final month of the season. And I think the fun thing about Trevor Rogers is that he was the rare spring training performance that actually meant something because it was, it was process-related. It was more velo. It was a pitch mix that was more crisp than when we saw him in 2020. So we had a little bit of late draft season helium on him, but Rogers still ended up being, I think one of the better late round value arms in a lot of leagues this season. Totally. And what's also interesting to me about him is that the Marlins had so much young pitching talent. The, if I thought in March that we were going to be talking about a Marlins pitcher and the rookie of the year conversation, I think I would have gone with Sixto Sanchez. I think that that would have been the name on everybody's list for the dude that we would be having this conversation about right now. And and Sixto hasn't thrown a pitch in MLB this year, I think. Uh, I think that he's been hurt and then down and then not. He, I, I don't, I, he just hasn't had that impact. I'm sure he might be back at some point and we can have this conversation maybe next season about Sixto. But Trevor Rogers for me was not supposed to be the guy in their rookie pitching staff and and he is and he's been outstanding uh the stuff is awesome i watched a lot of tape of him for that fangraphs article and it's just so impressive to watch him striking guys out it's just filthy um he's just filthy on the mound he's outstanding to watch i do wonder if he'll be able to hold pole position there because while i agree with you that i think he is the most talented rookie who has played in the nl i think that that stint on the bereavement list cost him some wins above replacement value relative to Jonathan India. And I also wonder to what extent voters worry or care about how visible a player is. India is, you know, at the fringe of a playoff race there. That Reds team is either in the second wild card position or just out of it. They're kind of like in and out of it, depending on the day. And India is getting a lot of traction, whereas Rogers hasn't pitched in a while. I need to go back and look at when his last start was, but I know he just arrived in a ball. So it's going to be a while before they see him again. And sometimes I think that the people who are voting for these awards are kind of out of sight, out of mind, and they may forget about Trevor Rogers when it comes time to fill out their ballot. Yeah. I always try to get inside the minds of the voters. And then I realize I'm not going to succeed in that. So I just try to decide how I'd vote if I had one in these situations. But Jonathan India, probably the favorite right now, which is really a nice story because I, I think the the prospect luster faded. He tried to play through an injury when we last saw him in 2019, kind of split that year, mostly at high A, saw a double A that year, had a 414 OBP 
in double A, but only hit three homers in 34 games there and had a 378 slugging percentage. So there were a lot of questions about how much of a, an impact he was going to make with the bat. Like if he was just an OBP machine that had eight to 10 home run power, that was going to be more of a utility bat sort of profile. And now it looks like he's more of a fixture for the Reds based on what he's done because he's completely healthy now. Homered again on Thursdays, up to 17 now for the season, over three war if you use the Fangraphs war. And I think this is mostly real too, but I guess what I'm trying to think about with India is how comfortable am I drafting him if he shoots up into the 50 to 75 range in terms of ADP? Like I don't think he's going to go that high, but if he gets up to 20 homers, he gets up to 10 steals, everyone looks at him and says, you know, year over year, he's shown a pretty steady hit tool, so there should be a pretty good batting average floor. I could see him being a guy that catches just a little bit too much helium coming off of a great rookie season. The other thing there is who he gets to play with. That Reds lineup is filled with a lot of mashers, and I tend to look at the guys around the guy when I'm looking at a guy like India who is going to get on base, is going to steal some bags, and I want to know how many runs is he going to score and how many guys is he going to bat in. If Castellanos stays with the Reds, if he does not opt out, and there's some chatter that Castellanos might opt out, which seems bananas to me, like to opt out in a CBA year, but Castellanos has definitely done some things in his career (laughs) that are not decisions I would make. So that's totally fine. Uh, It could happen, I suppose. Um, If Castellanos opts out, if Winker's not healthy, then, you know, India's value doesn't look as interesting to me in a draft. But if he's still playing in a lineup where he's got Tyler Stevenson, he's got Nick Castellanos, he's got Winker, he's got newfound power man Joey Votto, uh, that is a pretty interesting guy to have on base around all of those bats. And he becomes players like him, players like Vaughn, become a little bit more interesting than even a guy who might be more talented, like a Cabrian Hayes, who just doesn't have anyone around to either bat in or to bat him in. Yeah, well, I think there's a couple problems for me with Hayes, and I wasn't in the group of people that thought the power we saw in the shortened season was necessarily going to be the power we'd get this year. I didn't see him as a 25-plus home run guy. I've always liked him as a guy that plays great defense and is going to hit for a good average. And you can see it in the year-over-year results in the minors. He's been young for the level pretty much everywhere he's played. The power has kind of slowly grown over time. Like double-A and triple-A power was more like 10 to 15 home run type power over a 162-game season. Obviously, as a minor league player, he plays in fewer games. But I think there's still reason to be pretty optimistic about him in the long run, even with the poor quality of the lineup around him in Pittsburgh right now, in that I think his playing time is extremely safe. And he can be a good accumulator. So even if he's not let's say he's in a bottom five lineup for 2022 and probably even for 2023, depending on what happens in Pittsburgh. But I think there's enough there in the top part of the lineup for him to still exceed our expectations. Cause his, his draft day price should come down quite a bit barring some kind of massive September that totally changed the look of what he's done. He's been banged up this year too. This was a guy that I think rightfully was a big part of the conversation back in spring training for possible NL Rookie of the Year award winners. Um, So I remain optimistic about him, even though there are some reasons to maybe pull back on that ceiling in the short term. Yeah, I am certainly not out on Cabrian Hayes by any means. He is somebody that I am definitely interested in potentially drafting. But I think if I was trying to figure out if I am looking at him, I, I, I... I wonder where his price is going to wind up after this season. And I'm just not sure. So many people like him a lot 
both for the defensive reasons, <laughs> his playing time, like how he fits in that Pittsburgh lineup, like you were talking about. Um, and just for the, the brief glimpse we saw where he had like a 190 whatever WRC plus for that short season, there is an upside there that we have already seen. And I think that whenever a player demonstrates something like that, it's hard for their price to fall and collapse completely. I just don't know that his price is going to go low enough that I feel comfortable drafting someone that even as an accumulator, even as a guy with a lot of playing time is still going to be in Pittsburgh next season. I do more. I do a lot more redraft leagues than dynasty leagues though. Yeah. I have one. Okay. So I'm trying to come up with players from this year's ADP report who had similar profiles and, Maybe the at, at the optimistic end, like a Jake Cronenworth. Obviously, Cronenworth qualified at multiple spots, but I didn't expect Jake Cronenworth to offer a lot of power. Better run environment just in terms of the supporting cast in San Diego than what Brian Hayes likely has next year. But Jake Cronenworth was at the back of the top 200. If you're going to tell me today that Brian Hayes is going to fall that far, I'm probably in there. If he's going to go 40 or 50 picks ahead of that because of the power he showed us in 2020, that's probably in a range of the draft where there's still some other guys that I like better. But once you get down into that that back of the 200 range, like 200 to 250 especially, a lot of times there you're finding an excess in playing time for a guy like Hayes compared to the alternatives who you know are either prospects on the rise or they're big side platoon players. And I'd rather get the 100% playing time share in Hayes if, it's a big if, if he's available in that range. So we'll see where the where the chips fall in terms of his price. Very price-dependent guy for me in terms of my interest level for next season. Uh, Dylan Carlson, I think, is really interesting, too. A little bit like Kelnick, just in how much he struggled last year, but I think he's taken some nice steps forward this year. Walk rate is up. K rate is down. But we're not really getting the power and speed that we were expecting from Dylan Carlson. So are you expecting growth in one or both of those categories for him as we look ahead to 2022? I mean, I always expect the Cardinals to exceed expectations. I think it is a rule of NL Central baseball that the (laughs) Cardinals will absolutely antagonize you and some guy will be better than you thought he was ever going to be as a general rule of thumb for my existence. Uh, Whatever they're doing in St. Louis is some sort of magic and it's a dark kind of magic. Um, No, Dylan Carlson, I think, is, is really interesting, mostly because of how young he is. He is still 22 years old, which means I don't think that we have seen exactly who he is yet and there's probably still a lot of upside both in the power and the speed numbers the cardinals are clearly committed to carlson getting a shot in that lineup in the long term one of the things that i think is interesting about both of these al and nl rookie of the year candidate lists is exactly how many former cardinals are on them there are a (laughs) lot of guys who came up in the cardinal system that were let go for very little in terms of trade value or nothing in terms of a guy like Adelise Garcia, who are who could have been pretty helpful to a Cardinals team that hasn't gotten as much value from some of the guys they hung on to as some of the guys they let go. I mean, admittedly, Arozarena was part of the Libertor trade, and so that's something that you still can't really evaluate. We don't know what Libertor is going to be, when and if he pitches for the Cardinals. But it says something about Dylan Carlson that they held on to Dylan Carlson while they let Garcia walk and they traded a Rosarena and they traded Patrick wisdom and on all of these pieces that are floating around in some of these other lists. And so I, I think Dylan Carlson has a lot of upside. I'm super interested in him 
next year on my teams, even though he is a Cardinal and the Cardinals have been the bane of my existence since I was a small child. Yeah, same. No, I, I did common enemy, even though, um, you know, we're on the wrong side of a, a rivalry as, as fans as well. But I, I think with, with Carlson, because he's so young, I think you can project beyond like max exit velocity in terms of his raw power because he controls the zone really well. I'm still pretty optimistic about him too. It's kind of the general theme. These are still players we like. And I, I think the main reason I still believe in a lot of these players, regardless of whether they've only been just like league average type players like Carlson, or they've even been well below average players like Kelnick in, in the early parts of their careers, because I think it's going to take us a long time to fully grasp just how much last year messed players up. Everyone's experience was different. Each organization had a different plan for the alternate site and for players that either were there part-time or were shuttled back and forth or didn't even get to the alternate site. Like Every single development plan, organization to organization, was unique. And we won't have complete answers to who did well there and who didn't probably for another couple of years. So I think it's almost like the baseball age versus the real age for all these players who are part of this this group of, of, of rookies right now. I almost want to just subtract one because they just missed us. They lost a year and and it could be more in the long run. Uh, the other part of this too with Carlson, I mean, a wrist injury this season, maybe that sapped the power a little bit too. So that's the other reason why I don't want to look at the, the exit velo numbers from this year and say, oh, the ceiling's not as high as we thought. I think the category that I'm more worried about is actually speed because he's been up for 149 big league games now and he's attempted four steals. So if you were looking at Carlson, and going back to that 2019 double-A line where he was just amazing, 18 for 25 as a base stealer in 108 games, if you thought he's a 20-steal guy in the majors, I think you do want to pull back a little bit on that expectation. Yeah, I'm sort of curious now that you bring that up, and I, I have not looked at this yet, um, what the Cardinals have been doing as a team in terms of running generally, because I don't feel like I've seen them running a ton this season, but that, that doesn't mean that they are completely off the radar there. I'm just sort of wondering if maybe that's more of a, they're sort of hanging out towards the top third of stolen bases. So that's not an organizational philosophy. That's something specifically going on with Carlson. The thing that jumps out with me with Carlson, and I agree with you that perhaps he's not going to run as much as people thought that he would, um, is his strikeout and walk rates and how he's improved them from 2020 to now. So the thing that really makes me optimistic about him makes me want to move him up my draft boards for next year, you know, in the 2020 season, over 119 plate appearances, he struck out 29.4% of the time. It's pretty good relative to young guys at MLB these days. I, a lot of guys with 30, 35% strikeout rates, but he's cut that by more than 5% this season. He's only striking out 24.2% of the time across 487 plate appearances this season. And his walk rate has gone up commensurately. So he walked 6.7% of the time in 2020. He's walked 9.4% of the time in 2021. And so though that type of skill development leads me to believe that he's going to get a lot of run in a Cardinals lineup that's actually pretty good as much as it pains me to say. So I, I know that historically the, the research has, has kind of borne this out that the in-season spending on rookies especially is not a good use of fab generally speaking ariel cohen has proven that i think jeff zimmerman's proven it you can look at their pieces over at fan graphs it it's hard to refute it but the occasional hits the sotos and the jordan alvarez is like those guys tend to pull people back in and, and cause the 
Fabapalooza wildness that we're all uh, so accustomed to. I wonder if one of the bits of fallout from the lost 2020 minor league season is that we may finally have an opportunity in 2022 where young players don't come with the usual tax, both as uh, you know inflated players on draft day, but also even as players who are overpriced in season in leagues that use fab. Yeah, that's a really interesting potential observation. I mean, one of the things that we were just talking about here is sort of the the hit that some of the guys who had prospect pedigree this season took when they came up this year. I mean, I have Kirilov in a couple of different leagues. He struggled. It wasn't just the wrist. He came back a little bit, but then the wrist injury sort of has him on a downward trajectory. I would imagine that um, he went for more fab in the in the leagues where I got him then his draft price will be um, at the end of the season going into next year. Um, and similarly, I think that guys like Kellenic are going to go for lower draft costs than they went this season. I probably wasn't even available on a waiver wire for Fab if you got to that point when he got called up in most leagues. So I think that there's a possibility that some of those p- prospects come up and are more affordable in the 2022 season again caveat if the 2022 season happens I am less optimistic about this than you but that's partially because I, I just watched the Cubs literally orchestrate an entire season where they had one-year contracts lined up specifically so they could trade them for maximum flexibility before the collective bargaining agreement and it was it was methodical and it was deliberate and it is just one of those things that's, it's kind of mind-blowing to watch and the Nationals did an only slightly less good job of that than the Cubs. I mean, both of them are basically trying to retool for a 2023 run in a way that was pretty spectacular to watch. I think that one of the things that's interesting about this year is that the minor league numbers that we're seeing and the data that we're getting on some of these players is the, is the first data we've had on them in two years, right? And so there's a gap in the numbers that changes player value in a way that both impacts how who teams are going to pick up and who's going to get a shot at different places, but also what you're going to see when they finally get that shot. One of the things I'm really fascinated with, with this run of Cubs players who are basically guys who have never gotten a shot and they're going to get a month and a half here where they can show guys what they can do in their 29 and 30 year old season is you have a lot of guys there who weren't at the alternate site, who weren't on anybody's radar, who didn't have prospect stuff. This is their one shot. This is like their one opportunity to show what they can do with some major league experience. And frankly, a couple of them have actually been encouraging, although the team as a whole is not very good. And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. Hey, Frank, a little birdie told me you don't need a satellite dish to get DirecTV. What's the little birdie? Was it Jimmy the Sparrow? It's a figure of speech. Point is, you can stream DirecTV over the internet now. Oh, sure. Next you're going to tell me those big birds are made of metal and filled with people, right? (laughs) You mean airplanes? Stream DirecTV without a satellite dish. Visit DirecTV.com. High-speed internet service required. Terms and restrictions apply. As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10. Place your first bet on any game and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. 
See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. Yeah, I mean, I I don't envy the position of blogging for uh, well, a Cubs blog in general as a Brewers fan, but just when, it, when a team becomes very bad for a stretch and, and you're either a beat writer or you blog or you... Uh, do podcasts or a combination of those things, it is really difficult to hold an audience in a situation like the one the Cubs are in right now, the Pirates. I mean, Rob Beertemple has covered the Pirates as long as I can remember, and I just I feel so bad for him because what do you do, especially this time of year? I mean, the, in, a, in, a, in a city where the Steelers and the Penguins have had so much success too, and, and those sports always you know pick up, of course, this time of year, what chance do you have to engage an audience if you are a Pirates beat writer as they go through another year of, of rebuilding? But my question for you is someone watching this dumpster fire Cubs team closely, like how many of the guys getting that opportunity right now? And I think that would probably apply to Patrick Wisdom, Rafael Ortega, Frank Schwindel, probably even like David Bodie to a lesser degree. I know he's got that like longer term deal with them and he's a guy they brought up, whatever, but of the guys they're trotting out there right now, uh, the guys that are basically making tickets at Wrigley cost what like five bucks on StubHub, if that, they're, they're, you give them away right now. Who do you think actually has a chance to be on the next good Cubs team, in and and have like a meaningful impact? Like it doesn't count if oh Rafael Ortega might be there three years from now, but he's the fourth or fifth outfielder. Like, do you think they have any good quality players? And again, we're not counting like Ian Happ, who's been good before and is a longer term piece. Like, who do you like that you've seen, if anyone? I mean, Ian Happ has been so up and down. I'm not sure that we can count on Ian Happ being part <laughs> of the next good Cubs team. He's going to get a shot to play right now. I actually think that he's the reason Michael Hermosillo is not getting as much playing time because Ian Happ is getting as much run as he wants. And he's on an upward trend right now. So credit to him for that. But the ups and downs with Ian Happer, it's really a roller, roller coaster ride all of its own. Um I honestly don't think any of these guys are part of the next Cubs winning team. I think the only two guys that have a real shot at that are guys you wouldn't include in this, um, in this conversation. Nico Horner obviously is a young prospect and he's a pretty good defender at second base, a passable shortstop and could theoretically get some run in the outfield, particularly now that the Cubs have traded for Nick Madrigal because they probably don't need to high on base percentage, good defensive <laughs> second baseman. Um, I think Wilson Contreras could be extended. It seems like there's some rumblings that they might want to build around him if the price is right. And as since Wilson Contreras is my favorite player, I think that it is, you know, that is the best possible outcome for me of the current situation, but it's not a great outcome. Uh, I think that of the guys that are here, Rafael Ortega profiles on a good team as a platoon outfielder. He is a very good bat against right-handed pitching. And he's done that now over well over 200 plate appearances. And I think that it's real. I mean, I think that the last time I looked and it's been a couple of days, his WRC plus was in the one fifties 
over 200 plus plate appearances against right-handed pitching that that'll play, right? Like he's got, that's a guy who can go out there and his defense is pretty good too. I've watched him make a couple of catches in center field and definitely some plays in right that are solid. Uh, that's a guy who can give you a platoon situation. That is interesting. The problem for Ortega is that the platoon you'd want him to have is right field and he's a lefty and Jason Hayward is also a lefty. So there's, there's some mismatch there, but I'm sure the Cubs aren't really worried about figuring that out for a year or two. He's also 30. So, you know, you imagine 33 year old Raphael Ortega, probably not, going to be the same guy that we're seeing right now. Right now, he'd be a reasonable platoon guy on a contending team. He's probably not that when he is 33 years old. Um, and that's the problem for a lot of these guys. I mean, Patrick Wisdom is going to turn 30 tomorrow. The home runs are real. Like, the power is prodigious. I actually feel like Patrick Wisdom might be the type of player whom the short 2020 season devalued more than a lot of other guys because he didn't get a shot to play he got signed to a one-year deal by the Mariners and then he just didn't play at all for the Mariners organization at any point in time which is why the Cubs were able to sign him to a minor league deal and it's not just the eight home runs he hit in the first 10 games he came up or anything like that I mean he is currently hitting a home run in 7.98 percent of his at bats or something like that the last time <laughs> I looked at it it was utterly absurd. My favorite stat about this, and this isn't a piece that's going to run on BCB tomorrow, is that Chris Bryant is the current Cubs rookie home run leader record holder. He hit 26 in his rookie campaign across 650 plate appearances when he won the rookie of the year. Patrick Wisdom has 21 home runs in 288 plate appearances right now. And Van Grass projects that he'll get to 27 in 384 plate appearances by the end of the season, which means he is going to take Chris Bryant's rookie home run record in approximately half of the plate appearances, which is kind of wild to me. He's also going to strike out 40% of the time. I don't know how long you can stick around on a team that is contending with a 39.8% strikeout rate. So that is going to have to give if he wants to play on a contending team. And I'm not sure that he's going to be able to do that by his 32, 33 year old season when the Cubs might be good again. So I think that's the situation a lot of these guys find themselves in. It's there's some interesting guys fighting for some playing time right now. If an Ortega or a wisdom makes it to next season's roster, I imagine the Cubs will have a lot of playing time for them. Cause I don't think the 2022 Cubs are going to be that much better than the 2021 Cubs. So, you know, they could be some accumulators for you. And like I said, the power looks real. Uh, Ortega's numbers against righties look real. But I just, I don't know, the guys who are part of the next contending team are Nico Horner, maybe Nick Madrigal, maybe Wilson Contreras, <laughs> if I am particularly lucky. Yeah, and I, I could see the Cubs kind of going the the route. The Marlins went with JT Real Mudo, trading him with a year left, trying to get a few more prospects and just saying, well, let's just continue to break up the band. We've gone this far. So, you know, why, why bother? Why keep it even Wilson Contreras at this point? Uh, one last question before we go. I wanted to ask you any broader takeaways from this season, from either from a real life or from a fantasy perspective. I mean, you mentioned it a little earlier that maybe like holding Mackenzie Gore too long was something that you, if you had a mulligan, maybe you'd, you'd take that decision back. But is there anything that has really kind of stuck with you this season that you said, I'm actually going to go about things this way going forward, or I'm not going to do that again because that did not work? Honestly, the biggest takeaway I've had from this fantasy season and, and a little bit of background here for listeners who may not know me, I, I'm fairly new to industry fantasy league. So I'm one of those people who was playing fantasy baseball with my college friends for a long time. And I have won those leagues a lot 
because when you're playing with just your friends from college or high school or whatever, and you happen to cover a team, you just know when prospects are coming up or you know who some guys are that you can pick up off the waiver wire to fill holes. I mean, I was probably winning those leagues more on the fact that I was paying attention and just setting my roster more frequently than some people um, and understood who I could pick up, you know, that Aaron Judge might be an interesting guy to pick up. So I picked up Aaron Judge off the waiver wire with no competition. And that was an easy thing for me to do. Um, so this is actually my first full season playing with some industry types who act, who definitely challenge me and don't let me just pick up all of the new prospects off the waiver wire to supplement my team. And it's been super interesting. The thing that I learned the most and something that I've considered writing a bit about maybe in the off season, just some reflections on what it's like to be a new ish fantasy player with a bunch of people who have been doing this for a really long time is actually just paying more attention to playing time. There were a lot of guys who I really liked for ratio reasons or stolen base reasons who happened to be part of platoons that made it hard for me to get enough playing time out of them to rise above some of the accumulator categories. And even though like, I don't know the projections for like a, Birdie or Dickerson looked pretty good. Like it became really hard to roster those guys because I didn't know exactly when they'd be playing or the lefties and righties would be mixed up all on the wrong side. And I'd have to make some tough decisions about who to put in there. I at one point looked at my team and realized or in a couple of different leagues and realized that I probably could have jumped four or five spots just by having more consistent playing time. And so that's something I'm going to prioritize a little bit more when I go into next season. But the other thing that I'm going to think about a lot is just where value lives and what I'm trying to build in a team. I The team I have this year that I learned the most from actually is the team that is doing the worst. My TGFBI team got absolutely wrecked by injuries early. I mean, I had Aloy Jimenez in that team. I had Marcelo Zuna on that team. I had, I mean, the number of players that I lost on, it's really sad actually. Justin Mason and I talked about this a couple of months ago. And when we looked at my draft board, he was like, Ooh, that's painful. And I was like, yeah, yeah, it really has been. It's been super painful. But the thing that I learned about that is just that there were some, there were some injury prone players there that I could have shied away from more. Like I took some risks there and I took some guys that I knew might fall off due to injury. I think I have Starling Marte on that team too, who's definitely rebounded nicely, but I lost, you know, like two months of my top, like three of my top five draft picks. And it was just not, it was just not pretty. So I, I think that paying attention to some of those injury risks, paying attention to some of those playing time things is probably my fastest way to make an improvement on my teams for next season. And honestly, um, learning a lot about fab, it's something that I've been kind of scared of in the past because I didn't know what a bid should look like. And so I would, I would just not bid at all because I'd be trying to just gather data on what everybody else was doing. But I think I'm finally getting a handle on where those bids should be. And I'm excited to apply that knowledge next year. Yeah, Fab, everyone's learning curve is different on Fab. I think there are people that have played for five plus years in leagues with Fab that still don't think they have a good feel for what to bid, when to be aggressive. I'm sure they're better in year five than they were in year one. Some people kind of pick it up right away. I I don't really know if there's an exact science to it or if it's a, a gut feel sort of thing or, or what exactly the the solution is. But I guess you, you and I have had some conversations in the past where I, I've suggested, I think maybe as an industry, we've done a pretty poor job of making it easy for people who are 
newer to competitive fantasy baseball, as I guess I'll call it. That doesn't mean that a league with your friends can't be competitive, but I do think a lot of public leagues out there and different things people kind of start off in in fantasy baseball, they're totally different than the leagues where you have 11 other people or 14 other people who are paying attention to everything. I mean, Fab and Glarf is ridiculous. I, I think I went, I might've went six weeks without winning a player in Fab bidding. And I, I, I think of myself as at least a, a competent or an average player when it comes to handling fab. So there are also certain situations that are just like unbelievably difficult. And I've, I've certainly run into some NFBC leagues like that too, where you just get a room full of sharks and there is like, it seems like there's nothing you can do to get the players you want. You're, you're always being outbid, but um, hopefully, and again, I, I really want to make this something we try and do, over the course of the offseason going into 2022, hopefully we do a better job community-wide, not just at The Athletic, not just me personally, not just podcasters. We do a better job of kind of taking a step back and saying, what is really like the core element of learning how to play this game? How do we teach people how to play? How do we explain things in a way that that does speed up that learning curve, whether it's fab or whether it's something else? Like, I think there's just a lot of things that we could really do to to make that process easier for people who are approaching this game either for the first time or at a competitive level for the first time. Yeah, I couldn't agree with that more. And one of the things, I mean, you know this, but I don't know that this is a really common knowledge part of my bio. I taught for seven years. And so I'm used to explaining complex uh, systems and complex co concepts to students in a way that they can kind of get a hold of it. And I think that Baseball in general, not just fantasy baseball, anything sabermetric about baseball, it has a really high learning curve. I mean, if you're kind of going around and I heard you and Nino talk about this on Rates and Barrels a few months ago, but like chase rates in, on different sites, like which ones are which and how do you know the difference and why is this one different than that one? And that seems like a pretty basic thing. That is a thing that I remember doing like a few hours long deep dive on at one point when I had first started writing for BCB because I was like, Maybe I don't know what some what this Z swing O zone stuff is. And I and I honestly feel like there we need to do a better job of just having those resources be easily understood by people. I try to make it a point, particularly in my writing at BCB, which is not always a stats heavy place. Obviously on Fangrass, we're sort of assuming that you know <laughs> what some of those things mean if you're coming to the site. But at BCB, we don't necessarily. And so if I use a stat like WOBA, I try to make take the extra time to say, you know, WOBA is just a fancy form of on-base percentage that is giving you more credit for a double than a single so that readers don't feel alienated by that. Because I think that sometimes if you're just a casual wa watcher of the game, some of those stats can be a little off-putting. And if you feel like you don't know something, you don't necessarily... It, it doesn't always make people want to go research it and learn more about it. Sometimes it just turns them off from the thing that they were watching in the first place. So I hope to do a little bit more with that with my writing. I'm really looking forward to spending some time this off season uh, trying to demystify some of the things I personally found mystifying about competitive industry uh, fantasy leagues. And I hope that writing is helpful to people. Um, but I, I very much appreciate the time that you've spent talking me through some of that type of stuff and talking fantasy stuff with you today. This has been a blast. Well, yeah, thanks for joining me today. This was awesome. I always love talking about rookies with like anyone, but I'm glad that you wrote about them recently. It's like right in the wheelhouse of stuff that's still interesting for this season. And I think for for me, I always want to talk about things for the future this time of year because I realize people listening, like you, you might have teams like the one you described, Sarah, where you've 
you've lost a bunch of players to injury or you're kind of like mid-pack. You're probably not going to win. You're still playing for this year. You're still grinding it out. You're hoping for the best possible finish, but you have one eye already kind of looking to the future. Like I've been there before. And I, even when I have teams that are doing well, I'm still thinking about the future. I have a draft that starts the last week of September every single year. So I have to come up with some ideas in my head of how I'm going to value these players based on what we're seeing right now. What we could see over the final month. And yeah, I appreciate you giving me the time. And for everybody out there, give Sarah a follow at BCB underscore Sarah. No H at the end. S-A-R-A. I don't, I don't know how many ways there are to spell Sarah at least, but S-A-R-A. So really important to get that right. Sarah writes at Fangraphs and Bleed Cubby Blue also hosts the Cubs podcast by the same name too. So be sure to check that out as well, which I think it's really cool that you've got the, the Patrick Wisdom uh, pursuing Chris Bryant's rookie home run record storyline. That's the kind of stuff you have to do covering a team that has, uh, you know, nothing else to really get excited about. We will we will find things to be excited about in Wrigleyville, although I will say that the makeup game for the Rockies yesterday was the smallest crowd I have ever personally witnessed <laughs> at Wrigley Field. It was announced as like 24,000 something or other. It was definitely not. It was closer to 5,000. And by the time it started raining, it got even smaller. So the Ricketts would do well to sign a couple of players this offseason and keep fans interested if they don't want to see the their return on investment tank a little bit. But that's a podcast for another day. <laughs> Oh, yeah. Yep. That's another like, probably a September Cubs uh, episode uh, of, of Bleed Cubby Blue. But that is going to wrap things up for this episode of the Athletic Fantasy Baseball Podcast. If you're enjoying this podcast on a platform that allows you to rate and review the show, we'd greatly appreciate it if you took the time to do that. We are back with you with the waiver episode on Sunday. Mm-hmm.